0: Well good evening everybody. If you would please join me in Psalm 35. Psalm 35, tonight's verse will be verse 19. First let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we thank you. For your word and we thank you for the promises that we have in it. We thank you for the assurance that we have of your love of righteousness and your faithfulness to uphold it. We pray now that you would bless our time in your word. That it would be a, a fruitful uh, spending of our the end of our Lord's day together now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm thirty five nineteen reads Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. There is a famous quote uh, attributed to doctor Martin Luther King junior which goes something like the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It's become a, something of a popular quote for social and moral reformers. You know, President Barack Obama was a big fan of it, and hopefully as a Christian who reads their Bible, you've peeked at the end of the book and are persuaded that that axiom is indeed true However, it's, it's not true in the sense that a humanist social reformer might consider it. The arc of the moral universe isn't bending towards justice because the collective goodwill and compassion of humanity is pulling it that way. If you're waiting for humanity to suddenly grow a collective conscience that That bend might be a little longer than you're expecting. A quick cursory glance of the 20th century will quickly tell you that that last century was by far the most violent and ideologically divisive century that humanity's ever seen. And humanity seems to be getting even more inhumane in its treatment towards one another. It also happens to have been and presently is the most secular period in human history. So it is that there will be a great many people who find themselves dismayed at the fact that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice because there is a just and righteous God who ordains all things to the purpose that pleases him and is providentially guiding human history towards its end point of judgment in Jesus Christ. But for the psalmist who penned our passage tonight, and for Christians who have faced persecution throughout the ages, this fact is a comfort. It's to this God that the psalmist cries out at his unjust treatment. And so... We'll look at this prayer, and we'll learn four things from the psalmist's example of looking to the Lord for vindication. And the first comfort that we get from this is that the Lord sees everything. The first reason uh, that we read in our text for the psalmist crying out to the Lord is that there is no one else to stand for him. The pronouns indicating the oppressor in this verse—they're all in the plural: those, foes, etc. Indicating not just one oppressor, but a conspiracy of many oppressors, possibly of a a secret identity and number, which are perceived to be too much for the psalmist to overcome. Perhaps he feels as though the whole earth has turned to oppress him without cause, and so he is bold enough to entrust his cause to divine omniscience, which sees everything. The whole world, in fact, may be against an oppressed Christian, yet they may stand confident knowing that the Lord sees them in their suffering, and his eyes are too pure to look upon oppression and to do nothing. The fact that the Lord is good and he is everywhere and sees everything should be a powerful motivation for the Christian to pray and look to him for deliverance. The whole world or maybe just uh, your whole family or some of your coworkers or neighbor may be against you, but he who is with us is greater than they that are against us. The wicked take no care of the fact that the Lord sees and is concerned with everything, and that nothing escapes his attention. But the righteous may learn from the psalmist to take heart in this fact, and to look to the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth, who sees and judges all things. And the second thing that we may learn from this is that the Lord loves the righteous. When the psalmist says that they hate me without cause, he doesn't mean that there is no reason at all for their hating him. His enemies have a reason, but it's not a good one. It's not a just reason. He's done nothing to wrong or to harm them. There is no reason for them to seek his ruin. The reason that they hate him is because of their hatred of righteousness. There is an irrational hatred of righteousness and of the righteous themselves that drives wicked men to see it mocked. They feel their own evil deeds are exposed by the presence of the righteous and cannot bear to hear the judgments of God against them and their best loved sins. They love to see evil triumph over goodness and find no end to the devious means to see that light snuffed out or to have the rest of the world join them in mocking and despising holiness. They spread lies and try to convince others that righteousness is old-fashioned and oppressive and that its proponents are hateful and bigoted. They uh, treat, treat, uh, treat Christians as though Bible reading and prayer were the cause of the great troubles of our day. The Lord knows that it was not holy and harmless Christians who have set the world to confusion and chaos, but idolatry and immorality. The Lord loves the righteous and he receives the prayers of the humble who plead that he judge between them and their oppressors who do not give them any just cause to say that they acted wrongly towards them. The third thing we learn is that the Lord opposes the wicked. We see that the psalmist's persecutors weren't simply opposed to him without cause, though that would be wicked enough, but it's evident by his prayer that they take a cruel and malicious delight in his plight. They give a knowing wink to one another, making light of the suffering they inflict upon him as if it were no great evil. The wicked often make sport of the righteous. There is a record book written in the days of the Puritans, which marks all the great and terrible ages of persecution of the church and of individual Christians. Fox's Book of Martyrs begins with the that, that first persecution of the church by the Jews, which Paul participated in and the various Roman persecutions under Nero and Domitian, which saw most of the apostles killed, and chases the unjust oppression of Jesus' people right up to the reign of Bloody Mary, the Queen of Scots, and we could ourselves fill in the gap from that time to our own time with systematic persecutions like the genocide of the Armenian Christians in the 1915 or Christians suffering in the Soviet Union or the uh, yet ongoing attempt by ISIS to kill all the Christians living in their occupied territory. We could also go back further from that first persecution in Judea way back to the very first family and see in Cain's murder of righteous Abel, that the unjust suffering of the righteous by the wicked is still part of an ongoing plot thread which stitches together all of redemptive history. And it's instructive for us to see that from the very beginning, the Lord has set himself against those who do evil, and that they, spite, they that spitefully oppress his people But we also see that there is a parallel thread to the persecution of the righteous. The judgment of the wicked and the flourishing of the righteous despite the enemy's attempts to destroy them. Christ's church is still alive and well today. It was just shortly after Abel's murder that people first began to come together to call upon the name of the Lord Yet go and look back at any of the groups that have oppressed God's people. You'll not find them anywhere. The Ottoman Empire is not around anymore and the Roman Empire is gone. Nero and Domitian are long, long dead and forgotten. Like the psalmist, we can be confident that the Lord opposes the wicked and has not abandoned the righteous into their hands. Fourth. The Lord will vindicate righteousness. And finally, we can take an even greater confidence than our psalmist that the Lord is fixed on vindicating righteousness in all the earth. The Lord knows the faithfulness to the Lord's faithfulness to deliver the patriarchs through adversity, to rescue Abraham and Lot from the slaughter of the the five kings, or Jacob from the vengeance of his brother Esau, he knows of his elevating Joseph out of the pits of slavery to the heights of power and redeeming Israel from slavery and bondage in Egypt. The psalmist truly does know that he has never seen the righteous forsaken by the Lord, but we have an even greater confidence in Jesus Christ who went before us as our forbearer, who was more holy and harmless or unjustly hated than Jesus, who has ever known a greater sense of abandonment and being surrounded by malicious witnesses than Jesus, whose friends all fled from him at his hour of affliction and who felt the abandonment of his father on the cross. But the one whom men hated and treated so shamefully, this most righteous Jesus, is the same one whom God has exalted as Lord over all. Our Lord and Savior was hated by the world first, so we may not only be sure that our own hardships will inevitably come for his sake, but also so that we can see and be certain that our God and Father sees those who suffer righteously. Our Lord was raised from the death inflicted on him by cruel men. He was exalted to his Father's right hand to intercede for us. He's not unsympathetic towards your hardship. He knows what it is to be persecuted. In heaven he receives the prayers of the faithful martyrs who cry out for the avenging of their blood on the earth. And he does not ignore their cry. He only comforts them with a white robe and assures them that it will only be a little while longer. Christians who suffer in every place and in every age may take a confident comfort in knowing that those who were wrongfully their foes and who winged the eye at their suffering will themselves surely be put to shame. The righteousness for which Christians suffer cannot be suppressed by evil men forever. In the coming day of the Lord, will evidence that the Lord has seen all that has passed on the earth, that he loves his righteous servants and will judge between them and the wicked. The The arc of the moral universe is indeed long, and it does bend towards justice toward the joy of the righteous and to the dismay of those across all ages who have hated and mocked and so shamefully treated Christ. That means that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether willingly or unwillingly. And that God will not have his son mocked on this earth or his people treated so shamefully. So, like the psalmist, we can take heart and we can cry out to the Lord. We can be confident that those who hate without cause will not wink the eye at you forever. And that the Lord Jesus Christ takes your sufferings on his behalf, personally. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you hear our cries, that you are tender and sympathetic towards our suffering for your sake. We pray that you would strengthen us to endure it joyfully, that we would be faithful witnesses to your goodness that we would be like Christ, who did not revile in return, who did not return evil for evil, but uh went like a lamb before its shears, we pray that we would not give those who hate you and so persecute us any reason to have said that they have acted justly, we pray that. We would find a joy in being identified with Christ and with his sufferings. We pray all this in his name. Amen.